Welcome to episode 90 of TechSync, hosted by myself, Justin Vincent, and Jason Roberts. On today's show, our guests are Samuel Clay, developer of Newsblur. Hi, Samuel, and welcome to the show. How's it going, Justin? And also on this show, our guest is Amir Salihefendish, co-founder of Plurk. Hi, Amir. Welcome to the show. Hello, guys. Hey, guys. So um, Justin is in physical pain, so I'll be... Uh asking most of the questions. <laughs> um, and, uh, maybe you could have just explained why I've just got yeah. some tooth issues going on. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. Justin has had, has been, you've been going back and forth to the dentist like every other day. It seems like for the last three uh, weeks. Yeah. Basically root canal that's gone wrong. And the dentist left part of their, um, their tool in my tooth. What? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm just trying to deal with that. I thought that was just in the movies. No, I've, so I've got that little big piece of metal stuck right at the bottom of my root. My so tooth like, right now. You check for a glove under your tongue? <laughs> yeah. No, I didn't. <laughs> wow. Anyway. All right. Well, you know, you just sit there and uh, down some ibuprofen and I'll, uh, I'll start asking questions. Okay, sweet. I don't have um, an awesome intro, so I'm just going to jump in. Some questions, guys. Um, you know, I guess a couple weeks ago, Jess and I had the idea of doing this um, in the trenches series, where we get on a couple of entrepreneurs at the same time who are bootstrapping, building cool stuff, and uh, and then just kind of uh, make it a, a discussion show where you know we'll ask you guys questions about what you're doing, but you guys are are more than uh, welcome to ask one another questions if if you're interested. So, um, I guess to start, I'll just start with you, Sam. Um, why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, what Newsblur is and how you got started on it? Sure. Um, so Newsblur uh, basically is a RSS feed reader with intelligence. Um, it's got you know three main features. One, it shows you the original site, which um, really have to see to believe it. Uh, mm-hmm. It also um, filters out stories that you don't want to see. So you know, any if you're reading uh, John Gruber and he talks about sports, I filter all that stuff. He, the second he says Yankees, I never see it. Um, right. And then it highlights. Uh, third, it highlights stories that you do want to see. So on TechCrunch, anytime they have, um, you know, a story about a startup that I've never heard of before, I'd like to see that. And so um, pretty much uh, with those three levels of the red, yellow, and green, red being stuff you don't want to see, that gets filtered out, green being stuff you do want to see, you have a very simple RSS feed reader, um, very much akin to Google Reader, except I've never been a fan of uh, the design or uh, the usage of Google Reader. So I built something that... Um, both uh, I would enjoy and my girlfriend would enjoy since she's a very different RSS feed reader user than I am. Right. So I figured I would appeal to enough people just by focusing on uh, both of us. Yeah, you were two, two data points that were so far apart that if you got right. both of you, right. So, well, let me first start with this. So, I mean, you, you, you were frustrated with, um, you know, with Google Reader or, or I guess there wasn't anything out there that you liked. What made you want to start this as sort of like a, a company or a startup? Um, so I didn't actually start it as a company so much to make money as uh, sort of a way to get recognition. Okay. Um, I had, you know, I've been building a number of things, but you know, you kind of want to, you want to build things so that people hear about them more so than just building something that, so that it pays your rent. Um, sure. And so I was kind of interested in um, building up a reputation. Uh, and on top of that, you read on Hacker News, all these people have these wonderful projects that you know, do something very, very cool. And I'm thinking I could do something like that. But so far, all the projects that I've had after a few years of working on them, I just said, you know what, I'm throwing in the towel, I'm shutting it down. And I didn't have anything to show for my efforts. So I wanted to build something A that I thought, well, it shouldn't be so big that I can't complete it. But but B that I could show off uh, in a little bit. And so that's what I set out to do 
you know, was, I'd like to think wasn't too different than what ended up happening, but um, I certainly did not imagine it would involve this much code. I thought, you know, RSS feed readers, those are like tutorial level code uh, examples for how to build something in Python, you know? Sure. You just download information from a RSS feed and put it on a website. It's simple. Turns out it's a lot less. So it's the way it's, it ends up being harder than you imagine. Uh, how long have you been working on Newsblur? Um, well, I've been working on it for 17 months now. Wow. And now this is a side project, I imagine. So how many hours a week do you think you average on it? Uh, it depends. The last six months have been working a lot more often just because I started a job where I commute to Midtown. Uh, and I live in Brooklyn. So it's a 35-minute commute each way, which means I have an extra 70 minutes a day uh, on the subway, on the A train, that I use to work on Newsblur. So every single day, uh, over a week, you know, I get nearly six hours of extra work in. Um, and on top of that, if you spend an hour at uh, maybe two or three times a week um, just at home. So it's right. very much side project. And are you, uh, I, I, th I think I saw you have a Go Premium, so you actually have a paid paid account is that right yeah i launched that about a month ago i had i'd had only free accounts up until a month ago um and however many thousands of users i had it was you know kind of crippling the system um right. and so you know every thousand users you just have to completely re-architect the system um but <laughs> right. premium premium was one of those you know re-architecting that uh that allowed me to scale a lot further because i limited how many feeds that people uh could subscribe to if right. they were premium jason right. i think that um just being the, the the hand of God here, I think we should just redirect to Amir quickly, just to just get a quick intro into him. Yeah, sure, that's fine. Go ahead. No, so, you. <laughs> oh, me. All right. Yeah, yeah <laughs> you. You're, you're the hand of God. Do it. <laughs> All right. So, um, Amir, um, you now I've I've looking at your blog. It looks like you've um done three separate projects. You've done Todoist, uh, Plurk, and Wedoist, and uh, I guess. Maybe the best way to start is just to give us a little bit of a story of you know what you started with and in as you progress through the startups and through the projects. Yeah, uh, so the first two, uh, Todoist and Reduist, uh, are mostly like personal projects. Mm -hmm. I work on them like uh, myself, and uh, I do have some uh, outsourcing going on, but it's mostly just like uh, something I do at the nights uh, while. Uh, Plurk is more like a normal startup, but uh, yeah, both of them are like very um, weird. I mean, uh, Plurk is like, uh, we have worked virtually for like almost three years and uh, to do is and we do is uh, are my own projects. Uh, yeah. What, now, is, what is Plurk for those not in the know? Yeah, it's like a social network. It, uh, yeah, it resembles a bit Twitter, but it's nothing like Twitter. And uh, we have most appeal for the Asian users. So most of uh, Western users haven't really heard about us. But yeah, we have like uh, many millions users. Now you're you're based out of uh, Taiwan, right? Uh, no, uh, I'm uh, yeah. I originate from Bosnia, but I have uh, lived most of my life in Denmark, and okay. uh, I'm just traveling around. And currently, I'm in Taiwan. Oh, okay. But uh, I thought I saw something in the Plurk blog or the Plurk website that they're hi you're hiring people and you're looking for people in Taiwan. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. We are currently opening an office here in Taiwan. 
Okay. So is that why you're there? Is to help, is is in the you're in the process to help, of of setting up an office? You're just helping out with that? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Just uh, so we have also some employees here. Uh, I mean, uh, we are like uh, our biggest market is Taiwan and other Asian countries. So it makes sense to make like a an office here. Oh, okay. So in terms of Plurk, I mean, was this like something that you started on the side or with a co-founder or how did you get involved? Well, it's, it's, it's pretty weird. I mean, uh, yeah, I was at the, uh, attending university at the time when I started that. Uh, so yeah, I, I got like a weird email, uh, with some uh, weird ideas. Uh, and, uh, I know what you mean. I get this from Justin like every day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, uh, and then I. Who was your? Who was the weird email from? Well, it was another co- co-founder. I mean, uh, they uh, they were two. Uh, uh, yeah. So we had three three co-founders uh, of Plurk, and uh, one of them is a designer. Another one is like is um, managing the business aspects, and I'm like the developer side. So was this just somebody who who knew you from online, or you knew from his, from school or something that sent you an no, email? Uh, it was somebody that read my blog. Uh, oh, so, okay. Yeah, uh, they had like an idea, and they thought I could help them uh, develop it. And uh, yeah, at, at that time, I mean, uh, I was really interested in social networks, and mostly by like uh, what uh, driven social networks. Because uh, if you can like uh, replicate something like viral effects or viral marketing uh, and use that and understand that, uh, then uh, you have really, really a powerful tool to launch like any uh, product. Because right. if you if you don't really understand how you can like spread your application or your website around, uh, then uh, it becomes really. Uh, expensive to like market it so right. i mean uh, one of the reasons like why why i accepted the job is like uh, it, it was a new it was a new field for me that i really didn't know anything about so i wanted to learn more about it and become better at it no when they so did they have funding and they they hired you or was three people who were just putting in sweat equity how what was the arrangement when you guys got got going yeah they, they had some funding at it and okay. we still uh, but it's like private funding. It's not a venture capital. Okay. So, so the, the guy with the original idea had raised some funding, and he was looking for a, a technical guy to help him. And he found you on the web and said, "Hey, you know, jump in yeah. with us, and we'll pay you." And you, you get. A, I imagine you have a, a some ownership in the in the in the startup, right? Yeah, correct. Cool. And how long ago was that? I think it's about three years ago now. So three years, and you already have. And how many millions of users do you have? Well, we have all five million. So wow! So you're a little beyond in the trenches, I guess, <laughs> on this project, right? I mean, you're. Yeah. You, how many employees are, do you have there? We actually have very few. I mean, I think we are eight in total. Wow! So and are you profitable at this point? Or are you still running off funding? Uh, we are still running off funding, but okay. I mean, uh, we we aren't really spending that much money. I mean, it doesn't cost that much to run a a startup. Uh, uh, internet startup. I mean, I, I don't really know what uh, most of the companies are spending money on. Right. I mean, are, are the is it because the salaries of a lot of the um, the employees are 
people living in, in, in inexpensive places like Asia or Eastern Europe? Yeah, but also, I mean, we are very few people and uh, we don't really have an office uh, yet. Right, so it's just salaries and... and yeah. Uh, yeah, and uh, the servers are, of course, expensive, but it's not really that much. I mean, uh, you don't need like uh, 100 million to get your startup off, and you don't even need that money to like scale to millions of users. Uh, right. Hey, so, Jason. Yeah. Um, can, can you hear me, yeah? Yeah, I can hear you. Um, is this just, God again? Yeah, just a quick question. Okay. What What is the kind of thought behind the, the way this show is going to run and the process? Because we haven't actually discussed this before. No, well, I, like I said, it, it just, we're just going to you know play it out. I mean, my, my thought was that we just hop back and forth. I wanted to get a background on uh, on Sam and a background on Amir and then kind of talk about different issues. Like, we'll, we'll talk about technology and we'll jump back and forth on technology and, and marketing and, uh, you know, whatever. I'm, then we can jump back and forth. I just want to start off by getting a background on the two. Uh, on what they've been doing. Yeah, it sounds like they've both been doing very interesting stuff. And it's, it's, it's they're obviously very different stages of, of growth. Well, you know, so that's the other thing I want to ask. I, you know, uh, Amir, so you're, you're working on Plurk, but then you also have, you know, Todoist and WeDoist, which you've you started. And the reason that, that I found you is we had interviewed Luke Robluski, um uh, a couple weeks ago, who's a user um, interface expert, and he mentioned we do it as an example of a really, really good uh, UI. Um, so that's how we found you, and I, I took a look at it, and it's really interesting. It's a really quick uh, sort of a I don't know Ajaxy experience. Um, so why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, we do us and to do us, and why you're working on those as well? Yeah, uh, well, um, uh, it, they are like side projects, and uh, I mean, they are like in a total other field of uh, of products. I mean, sure. yeah, Todoist is like a task manager, and uh, we do is this like a project manager. Uh, and I mean, I mostly work on them because I use them myself. So uh, they are like uh, mostly made for me. Uh, but I noticed that I think you also have premium accounts on WeDoist, right? Uh, yeah, I have them on on both, and they are both uh, profitable. And uh, wow! So when are, you say profitable, you mean like uh, profitable enough to pay for the server hosting, or profitable enough? I mean, I mean, would it be like enough to where if you weren't working for Plurk, you could actually make a living off it? I mean, what are we talking about? Yeah, I, I could make a living off it. I mean, I, I wouldn't uh, live like uh, that uh, that wealth that wealthy, but I I could live of them. Wow. Well, that's great. Well, it's cool. So I'm going to get into more of that in a minute. So why don't we um, hop back to um, Sam and because uh, and, I'd like to get into the, I don't know, the scaling and, and launching of stuff. So uh, Sam, the, the first thing I, I guess I would ask you is, so you're working on Newsblur for quite a while. How long were you working on it before you finally launched a premium? I guess you said, what, 16 months maybe? You, you yeah, I'd say about 16 months. It was, um, it's been live like at newsblur.com and anyone could register for the site. Uh, I'd okay. say since January of this year. Um, but like, it was like, you couldn't use it. It couldn't mark your stories until about June. So it spent, you know, three or four months in the wild before I actually had a premium account. And okay, that's actually and when so, it started getting a little bit of press. Right, is when you started actually charging for it? No, so I started charging um, in the middle of October, and um, okay. it started getting press in, I'd say, August. Okay, and why do you think it got press at that point? You just think it hit a critical um, 
critical point of just usability and features or, or what? Well, yeah, so those, um, those basic features, the filtering and the highlighting, uh, and as well as like the cool JavaScript trick of showing you the original site, which is really just a proxy. Um, well, that right. was all in there. And I think that was enough for people to say, this is a great looking app. Uh, it didn't do a lot of fancy things that Google Reader did, like starring and sending an Instapaper and, you know, uh, the river of news view, which is still being built in, like our iPhone app. But for just like a basic reader, I think a lot of people were happy with where it was, even as a basic minimum viable product that took a year and a half to get off the ground. Yeah, I, that's that's true. That's true. I mean, it, it takes a while to build something. They, they, you often hear people talking about launching something in a week or a weekend. That's not really a product. It's just, you know, it's, I don't know what that is, but it's not it's rarely a product. And yeah. to build something that people are going to use, it seems like it's going to take a little while, maybe not a year and a half always, but. Well, right. It's, it's a year and a half at six hours a week, you know. Um, right. And like Gmail, <laughs> Gmail was built in a day, but it was not a Gmail at all recognizable that, you know, compared to what we have today. Um, and I just don't think I could build, you know, a Google Reader or an RSS feed reader in a day that would at all be valuable. Um, and I, maybe sure. the Gmail of, you know, day one wasn't valuable. Um, but, you know, it certainly wasn't viable either. Well, you know, you know, it's I interesting. Actually, uh, yeah, I actually built a feed reader. Uh, I mean, uh, it, it is like some years ago, but uh, it was like a week's project. But, uh, yeah, so we got it done and then uh, we couldn't really maintain it. So, I mean, yeah, so you can probably build stuff very fast, but uh, it's probably not going to be maintainable. Yeah. yeah, you know, it's what's interesting is that I, I think a big part of success is it's not just the technology, it's or being clever or, or whatever, it's the persistence. You know, you got to stay on something. And it seems like, you know, with uh, with this project with Newsblur, I mean, you're sticking on, you're sticking with it long enough. You didn't give up after six months and you stay on yeah. it long enough to keep refining it, refining it and making it better. And yeah, yeah, maybe you could have built something simple in the six weeks or something, but. You know, it's the it's the willingness to stay on it. I think that, that plays that's a, a big key part. part of it. Yeah, that's a big part of the fact that like it's out there now. But I didn't give up. And oh my god, there were so many times that I just wanted to say, you know what, <laughs> screw it, I'm switching to a net newswire. Um, <laughs> you know, there's a bunch of setbacks that you'll find. You know, like uh, just just simple things you write in Python. Um, and I use this as an example uh, on one of my blog posts of writing a feed fetcher. If you want to scale a feed fetcher, you can't just have, you know, a single thread going out there and fetching half a million feeds. You got to have, you know, distributed feed fetching, uh, working in parallel and not tripping over each other. Um, and that's like, you know, you would think it's easy, but it's, it's, <laughs> no. after the code is done, yeah, it's simple. It's trivial now because it's just, you know, you use a, a queuing service and you send out the, the feeds and, you know, it's not too bad. But building it, I was just like running into walls, building really elementary stuff. It's actually great that you that you got down to that level. Um, and I, I always say this to people: it's re, it's really good to. I mean, I don't know whether you built your own queuing system, but if you did, um, I think that's great. Um, or maybe <laughs> maybe, you, maybe you started with another queuing system or whatever. How, how did you actually do that? Did you do your own or did you use something else? Yeah, I, I use Rabbit RabbitMQ, um, and actually use Celery, which is uh, Ask Solon's project that he built. He's an engineer at Opera, and he built Celery. Uh, about a year ago, and I started using it for another company that I work on, uh, another startup I work on called Storybird. Um, and so we use a queuing service there. And so I just kind of attacked it on Newsblur. And it was, you know, when it was pre 1.0, it was it was a miserable experience because it would go down in the middle mm -hmm. of the night and nothing would fetch. 
Um, and you bring it back up and all of a sudden you have, you know, race conditions where, you know, it's expected a fetch and it's been too long. Um, but, you know, now it's at a stable 2-0. Jason, this is probably going to be my last question. Although, no, I've said yeah, that. It yeah, probably right. Be my last okay. question. All right. The one thing, like both of you guys are starting stuff that it in feels that there's literally thousands and thousands of competitors. How do you feel about that? Um, I guess I'll ask Amir first. Uh, well, uh, I don't really care that much. I mean, yeah. So uh, I think it's just about doing something that's completely different from what anybody is doing and uh, if you ha- have like any or- original ideas then uh, your product will be a lot different from anything else and uh, as long as you aren't like directly copying somebody then uh, <laughs> th- then you have like a good chance of survival i mean uh, the main problem i see is that like uh, people uh, when they want to do like a social startup, they go and copy Facebook directly or they copy Twitter or they copy whatever. Uh, and that's basically when you lose because uh, you can't really like compete directly uh, with somebody like Facebook or somebody like Twitter. You have to make something that's completely different from them if you want to be in the same market. And uh, the same holds true for uh, or anything else and uh, i think also is probably the the reason why news blur has succeeded because it is a lot different than like google reader maybe but mm. i i'm absolutely thrilled that i have a bunch of competitors because rss feed reading is not something that you know is trivial to grasp it actually takes a little while to not only understand what exactly is happening with an rss feed but understand i'm not supposed to go to the websites anymore the websites now come to me and that's not a, a simple thing to understand so I have these competitors, and one of whom is, you know, this giant elephant, this obese elephant in the room, and everyone knows about it, um, and it links to an empty Gmail inbox, uh, which, you know, very few people ever see. But so many people are aware of what Google Reader is, it helps me tremendously, um, because I then don't have to teach a lot of people, this is how you use it, you have to enter in all of your sites by hand. I can just say, guess what, you already use a competitor, thanks to OA, thanks to, you know, import-export magic. I can have them onboarded within seconds. Um, so competitors, like I had a bunch of people come on from blog lines when it closed earlier this month um, because they were a competitor, but they were going down. In fact, I just got an email today. They're going back up. Um, but, you know, their UI is from 10 years ago. Um, but, you know, having competitors is absolutely wonderful because otherwise it's a stagnant market. Right. You know, it's interesting. It's like you're, you, you, you have to pick your poison, right? So either you're competing or you're educating. So... Either you have to get out there and, and, and you know there's going to be other people out there, or you have to go out there and try and ex- spend a bunch of time explaining to people why they should care about what you're doing. And uh, I think you make a good point, which is, yeah, go out and compete. I mean, the, I guess the, the lesson of the, from both of you is you can compete in a crowded market, just do something a little different. You know, try, just take a different spin on it, right? Yeah, and I don't need a big slice of the pie to be able to be happy. I mean, I'm happy with, like, my thousandth of percentage, you know? And that's already uh, so much that I can't even handle it yet. Well, let me ask you this then. I mean, so where are you in terms of revenue? Are you like, you know, you can pay for your uh, car payment kind of thing level? Or are you, I mean, how far are you away? Are you from, yeah, you know I mean? It's because it's kind of interesting. I think like, 
when you start something small, it's like a lot. You hear these stories where guys will say, "Well, you know, I just wanted to be able to buy a vi- new video game at the end of the month." I think Patrick <laughs> McKenzie was saying stuff like that, you know, and yeah. you're like, "Oh, well, man, it'd be great if I could like pay for my health insurance." Oh, well, now if I could pay my rent, and then pretty soon you're like, "Holy smoke, I can actually live off this," <laughs> you know. And it's interesting because you can kind of rather than think in terms of dollars, you if you set your expectations low to just being able to purchase things that used to have to pay for out of your sort of like fixed salary. It's a, it's a real um, sort of a psychological boost. And um, yeah, I'm just kind of curious, where are you on that? If you just started charging a month ago, are you actually able to, is it anything substantial yeah, well, at all yet? So the server costs are a lot. Um, I have four servers and you know, each one is 20 to $40 a month. Um, so yeah, the server costs while substantial, I'm profitable in that my server costs are paid for. Um, and okay. at this point, I'm near a uh, hundred premium users, uh, which for okay. you know just over five weeks of work of premium users is not bad. Um, the server is paid for; those are renewing users, so the server is paid for for a year. And if they all renew, uh, that's you know another year. Um, and I get you know a few more premiums every single day. Do they pay per, by the year or by the month? They pay by the year. Interesting. Um, so it's a dollar a month, but they pay twelve dollars at a time. Wow. Um, now, in terms of your pricing structure, I, I mean, a dollar a month is, 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 you know, very inexpensive. I mean, it, it, you know, the, the big jump is going from nothing to something. So I'm yeah. wondering if $1 a month is a big jump to like $5 a month or $3 a month. I mean, have you ever considered just raising it to $3 a month and see what happens and then grandfathering everybody in at $1 <laughs> and, and run, run for a few yeah. months? Yeah. So the, the way I see it, my number one priority is not to make money on this um, so much as to get recognition. I want to raise my profile. And I think, you know, so far it's working out pretty well. Um, mm-hmm. And because, you know, priority number one is not to make money, I actually think I can reach a much larger swath of users and make them happy by charging, you know, what dollar a month is, is pocket change. Your, your lattes cost more than that. So it's, it's easy for me to say, you know what, I really don't care. I would practically give the thing away if, you know, I could, but I figured you can't really go below a dollar a month. Right. Well, you know, one reason to charge, to charge though, is what, I mean, you know, right. You're, you're doing it because it, it's, it's, it's to get recognition, which like you said, it's, it's working and it sounds like it's been a huge learning experience for you. You learn all kinds of stuff that you didn't know, which is, which is great. But the other thing is that at some point it's, it just takes your time, which you could be spent doing other things. And if you're making, you know, $5,000 a month versus $50 a month, it gives you a lot more incentive to like put time into it. Um, otherwise, it's, when, when it, especially when you start it's getting actually, burned it, out a little bit. Yeah, it can also be better for your users because if you, if you have enough money to put more time into it, then the product's going to get better. So that's another aspect. Well, what, what do you think about that, Sam? It's, there's a bit of fear in it, you know, because if I suddenly have users paying much more than pocket change, um, maybe they expect better support. You know, sometimes my DV needs migrating, and so I take it down for three hours. Like, you don't have your feed reader for three hours. If I have users who are paying, you know, uh, a slightly larger chunk, I don't think they'd be happy with that. I like having the freedom to say, you know what, I'm going to upgrade the database. I'll do it at midnight Eastern time, but still, that's like 9 p.m. for the West Coast. Um, it's, it's a support thing, you know? It sounds like you, you wanted to learn how to, you know, all, all the different angles and aspects of running yeah. that professional <laughs> company. And one of those, one of those angles is, is having something with 24-7 uptime. That's so, right. <laughs> so if you just, you, you know, you could work out a strategy to keep it up 24-7. <laughs> That's true. Um, it's, 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 I guess, back to fear. I'm, I'm worried <laughs> that people are just going to get upset with, you know, what if, it, what if it does crash, you know? 
Right now, yeah. my backup strategy is I back up only the necessary bets because it's free and because it's a little easier and a little quicker. Um, but, you know, if I guess if I had more uh, income, I could actually do like a legitimate ba- backup that would be instant and get everything. And um, Exactly. Well, well, there you go. I think if you went to say, you know, here's our unsolicited advice segment of the show. <laughs> right. So I, I would say, let's say you charge $3 a month. Okay. That's still pittance, right? It's still nothing, but it's three times what you're making now. And, you know, you, and you can inch it up from there, but it's still so little that nobody's really going to hold, hold you to the fire if, uh, if they have a little downtime. It's just a feed reader, right? It's not their your banking system. And, and it'll allow you, like you said, you'll get closer to you being able to afford whatever backup infrastructure you need. But it also, it's like getting out, getting beyond the fear. Like, you know, they, you, you hear that a lot of times, you know, when it comes to startups that one thing that traps people is that they're scared to move to the next step. And, you know, everyone has to move to the next step in their own time. But I don't know, it might not be a bad idea that, you know, maybe you need another month or two at a dollar a month just, just to kind of for your comfort zone. But it just, I just think it might be worth considering moving to the next level. That does that doesn't mean you have to ch- you know change any of your existing customers, right? I mean, no, they, no, they, no. They, they stay. Oh at the yeah, dollar absolutely. A month, Grandfather right? all of them in, even at a reduced rate. Like you know what, everyone else is paying more. I'm going to have you because you're so good to me. Six dollars a year. Did Did you hear um d- uh, our last show with David Cancel? Um no no I listened to the the many before that but not this one. Okay so um so David uh went f- uh from. $20 a month to $100 a month. And didn't, as their lowest, as their least expensive. Yeah, as their least expensive plan and, di- and didn't see any drop in take-up. So just yeah. to... Well, here's what I'm thinking. I mean, and then I'm going to jump to a mirror is that, you know, I, I, I think you could, you know, explore this over, you know, the next year, right? It's not like something you have to do next month, but yeah. you could sort of evolve this to being the premium feed reader to where it, it is worth the money. You know, the people are paying for it. They know they're paying for it, the money. You signal that it's worth more because it costs $10 a month. You know, you know, and this maybe this is a year, year, year and a half from now. But um, I don't know. I, I think it'd be interesting. Don't forget, Jason, that's not his purpose. His purpose here isn't, isn't to kind of make lots of money. It's to get the recognition. Well, here, here's the thing. One thing I would say about that. Okay, that's fine. You know, I mean, we all have like multiple reasons for doing things. It's usually not all. Like you go to college for a lot of reasons, right? You go to learn, maybe to get a job, to have fun because it's next stage in life. I mean, it's hard to boil things down to one. And I think for Sam, it, it could be, you know, like he said, I mean, primarily to get recognition and to learn, but then, you know, reasons or motivations can change over time because new possibilities open up. I think it's possible yeah. that people see more value when they have to pay, like Fever, which is uh, one of my main competitors. Um, it's Sean Inman's uh, feed reader that you actually download and host yourself. Um, right. He charges $30. It's a one-time fee, and I don't know if that includes upgrades, but for all intents, let's say it does. Uh, $30 is a lot more. It's practically three years of news blur. Um, so I think there's a lot of value that you feel comes out of paying $30. And I certainly feel that Newsblur is, is worth $30, but I've spent a lot of time with it. And, you know, I've, uh, I've seen how the edges are, are at this point polished enough. Maybe I could charge more. Maybe, um, you know, I, I think maybe it'll also go towards my priority of uh, raising my profile just because people are aware that there is this premium product. Um, you know, and the other thing I'm, I'm doing is not just, you know, w- why raise your profile? I want to meet co-founders. I live in New York City. I'm at, you know, Hackers and Founders, which is a, a hacker news meetup. Um, I go to that once a month. I'm always trying to meet co-founders so that maybe Newsblur does not become a large-scale business. 
But I meet people who will then say, you know what, I'm about to leave one company. I want you to come with me and we'll start something even bigger than the spaghetti you've made with Newsblur. Sure, sure. Okay, well, let's let's jump over to Amir. Um, Amir, so with I'd like to just maybe ask you about what doest, um, you know, because, you know, that's kind of like a more at the bootstrap stage. And um, it's just sort of in a comparison to what uh, Sam is doing. So you have premium accounts, is that right? I think. We uh, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. I have a and, premium accounts on both uh, Todoist and Widowist. Right, and and you said you could actually make a living off this. How how long how long has it been that you started charging on those? Uh, well, uh, for Todoist, I have charged like uh, two years ago. I mean, I started charging before uh, freemium was very popular. Uh -huh. uh, and, and that was because uh, at the time I was a student uh, and I really couldn't pay the, the server hosting. And I, I really didn't want to because, I mean, if people are using your product and uh, they want to support you, then uh, the best way they can do that is by giving you some money. And uh, sure. I think... Uh, like for productivity products or just like products in general, I mean, giving a few bucks each month, if they like make you more productive is worth a lot for the users. I mean, um, if you spend like $5 uh, for a reduced uh, premium account and it, it improves your productivity 10%, then uh, those $5 are, are well spent. And I, I think most users uh, are aware of that. So you just like have to, I mean, yeah, you have to like uh, have a great product that improves the lives of the users before you can like charge. And uh, when you do that, then you can charge and and earn money on it. That's at, at least how I look at it. What is your pricing structure for Widowist and Todoist? Well, uh, for Todoist, it's uh, $3 uh, per month, and they get uh, a lot of extra features, such as uh, yeah, notes and uh, reminders and stuff like that. And uh, Todoist... Wait, you said, you, you said $3 a month? $3? Yeah, yeah. $3, okay. And uh, for okay. Todoist, uh, I mean, currently, it's mostly like uh, file uploads, which are pretty expensive for me. Uh, so uh, I just charge for file uploads. If you want to have file uploads in your project, uh, that costs five dollars a month. Uh, yeah, and uh, I think uh, in the future I will add more uh, to the premium stuff, especially for Redoist. Now, how did uh, you know when you launched? I mean, how many users did you have out of the gate, and how did that how did that user base grow in terms of say your premium premium and uh, free users? Well, uh, actually, only like uh, I mean, my numbers are very similar to many others, so it's like uh, three or four percent of the users that are premium. Uh, right. And I I don't and really think you can get it much. Uh, I mean, you can get it higher, but then you have to be like. Uh, really aggressive and you have to like ruin the product for the free users if, if you want to get that higher uh, so i right. think it's like a fine balance uh, in terms of how how much do you want to grow and uh, how much do you want to earn right now so when you launched uh, i mean how many how many 
users did you have out of the gate? I mean, did you have like 10 or 100 or 1,000? How did that, how did it start out? Where did it go to? I really don't uh, remember that. Uh, I think actually when I first uh, released it, I got like a, a hundred or something in, in a few days. And I was like really impressed uh, that uh, that was possible. And uh, right. I, I mean, this is for Todoist. And uh, this is, uh, or this was like uh, in a time when nobody was really doing it. Uh, right. And, I mean, and, oh, 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 yeah, only a few people are doing it. So, and you're talking about you had about a hundred, after a couple of days, you had a hundred uh, free users. So, um, is that right? No, 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 a uh, hundred uh, premium users. Wow. I mean, yeah, that was when I launched the premium service. I, I don't really remember the, the, I mean, I can remember when I launched and how many users I got and stuff like that. But I mean, it, it has just grown uh, like, I mean, I la launched the Todoist for yeah, maybe three or four years ago. Uh, so it has just grown, and I I can't really remember the start, but it, it was just a side project for me, you know. Uh, I I really didn't view it like a startup or anything like that. I, I was sure. just uh, coding around and uh, trying different stuff and creating a task manager for myself. Right. I mean. Yeah, it's just, it's just really, it's just kind of cool. I mean, I, I think that a lot of people listening might think, well, you know, you, there was, there's a million task manager to-do list. I mean, there's things like Backpack that everybody's heard about. And yet you start your own, you do a new spin on it, and you can make money at it. And and um, it's just uh, it's surprising. And it's also sort of inspiring, right? I mean, it's like you don't have to go searching for some niche where there's nobody working on anything. You can actually work in an area with other people and just, you know, do something cool. And, and actually, I mean, especially if you're not trying to support an entire company, right? If you're just trying to support yourself or not even support yourself, yeah, you just yeah. augment uh, your, your current income. Yeah, I think the, I mean, the, it's currently really great to be a hacker, you know, if, if you can develop stuff that people like and that they are like billions of people online. So some of them will like your stuff. Uh, right. Right. Uh, and, uh, I mean, you can make a living out of almost anything. I mean, I know people that are doing, uh, ridiculous stuff and are earning lots of money. So, uh, well, okay. How did you when when you first started? And then I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you the same question, Sam. Is you know how did you initially get your first user? Were you blogging about it? Did you buy AdWords? Did you did you send uh, other bloggers and inform them what you're doing? I and mean, how did you get some press and get attention? Uh, I really don't remember, but I, I think I used my blog, and then uh, I mean uh, before Todoist, I had done like some other. A very popular, uh, uh, yeah. Before Todoist, I had done like a spell checker uh, that got a, a lot of traffic, so I could like, uh, yeah, I could advertise for free via that page, and uh, that page got like a thousand uh, hits a day, so I could like, yeah, advertise that way, and right. uh, uh, also. Yeah, I got also a lot of uh, like free press bloggers blogging about it. Uh, yeah, uh, st stuff like that. I mean, 
uh, I, there isn't like a formula uh, that I followed or any specific things. I, I just uh, tried my best. And uh, also I hit the uh, like uh, life hacker and stuff like that. Uh, yeah. So, did they, uh, so you so you contacted Lifehacker and did they and they actually wrote a, wrote a little piece about you? Yeah, yeah, they did. Uh, and how much traffic? They'll that'll usually drive a quite a bit. That's like a like almost like a, a tech crunch effect if you get Lifehacker writing about you, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't know. I, I think I got like uh, a lot of users uh, that way, uh, or like uh, you know, but. The, those kind uh, that kind of traffic isn't really that uh, that healthy because uh, it's like uh, you get uh, ten thousand users on one day and then the next day it's totally died off. Uh, I think a much more powerful way is like organic growth, viral mar marketing, and stuff like that. I mean, because if you have like viral channels, then you will have uh, yeah grow each day, then you don't really have to be lucky and get uh, on Lifehacker or, or whatever blog you want to get on. I mean, uh, for mm -hmm. like, uh, for Plurk, we haven't been, uh, yeah, I think we only been uh, listed one times on TenseCrunch and it was when uh, Microsoft copied us in China. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, uh, you, you can't really uh, prepare yourself uh, so uh, when you say when you say viral channels, I mean I can understand that in terms of a social network, but how do you have a viral channel for things like Wadoist and Todoist? Well, I haven't actually figured. I mean, I, I have some plans, but uh, that's why I really uh, wanted to dig into Plurk and learn learn that stuff because uh, if you don't really have it in your product, then. Uh, you will get uh, beaten by others that do. I mean, one great example of this is Dropbox. I mean, their virus strategy is pretty genius, I think. And if what, is their, what, is their what, wait, what is their viral strategy? How would you describe uh, it? Well, they give a, I mean, you invite somebody and then you get uh, some free space and they get some free space. So it's a win-win for inviting users. All right. Right, the reciprocal and, uh, referral fee or whatever, referral discount or something. Yeah, yeah, and that's really popular, I think, because I see a lot of my friends that are, like, inviting me or something like that. Uh, and, yeah, I think if you can, like, uh, build such strategies into your core product, then uh, uh, then your product and your marketing and your growth will be much more powerful. Then, then right. just like I'm going to build this product and it's going to be really good and people will come because, yeah, that maybe works, but you have to be super lucky. While uh, right. understanding the other stuff, I mean, you can like uh, build it so it grows. And yeah. Right. The, so Sam, you know, so I guess I'll ask you the same question. You know, how did you get your initial initial sort of traffic so that people started signing up and and everything? <laughs> I remember the day. It was middle of June, and I posted a single comment on Hacker News, just in reply to a Ask Hacker News, why do most RSS readers suck? And it was June, so you know, at this point, I've got things up and running to a point where, you know, I just baked in uh, registered accounts the week before. And I posted a comment saying, you know, I think I built something kind of cool here. Uh, it does this and this and this. 
Um, and from there, I got like three or 400 users, which is a ton for a system that has seen no more than me and my mm-hmm. six test accounts. And um, right. incredibly, from there, like a day later, uh, the next web and uh, Read Write Web and a few others wrote stories about Newsblur. Uh, and they did it, bam, 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 one after the other. And luckily, I had enough time. I kind of, you know, battened down the hatches and, uh, you know, got got enough things cashed. And uh, things were quick. And the whole the site was responsive. It didn't go down. And, you know, that week I just spent up. Every, I was up all night, you know, refactoring the database. Um, but, you know, stories were written just based on a single comment. I didn't do anything. I didn't even contact these sites. Um, and now I'm a little more proactive. I, you know, write emails to a few bloggers. Uh, I have um, relationships with a few people who, you know, who write and, you know, I'll try to give some of them exclusives on a new feature. Uh, but in the early days, which is, you know, five months ago, um, like <laughs> back in the day, <laughs> there was there, there was there was nothing. I didn't I didn't do a thing. And it was very cool how people just found the comment in a random thread and ran with it. Sam, do you have any um, sort of plans for, um, you know, I don't know what they call like paid traffic, like buying ads or AdSense or AdWords, or whatever it's called, or any of that kind of stuff? Um, my plans are, I, I don't, I don't know. I, I don't think I necessarily need to spend money on uh, PR, but um, I think investing time, you know, time is the only currency I really can spend. Uh, all the site was built on just, you know, my own free time. Um, so sure. I'm spending a lot of time writing into people. Uh, you know, there's a bunch of blogs I haven't been covered on. I just got a life hacker post just about three or four weeks ago, uh, but that didn't come immediately. And so, I, you know, I, I'm just spending a lot of time cultivating relationships at this point. Um, and I'm not doing any paid, like, I think if people are looking for an RSS feed reader, they're going to find Google reader and that's, that'll be it. You know, it's a Google product. They're not going to search much further than that. But then sure. again, my intuitions I've noticed half the time are just dead wrong, which is why I have, you know, my other use case sitting, uh, sitting behind me on the couch, um, right. with my girlfriend <laughs> and, you know, I'm just like so dead wrong. So often, sometimes I assume that whatever I think is the exact opposite of what I should do. So maybe paid search right. is a good idea. Right. You know, like I, I didn't build river of news cause I don't use it. And it turns out half the users have said, you know, news sucks cause it doesn't do river of news like Google reader does. <laughs> right. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. Cause you, you just, I guess you have two or three sort of standard formats and you know, you never, it's always hard to tell, you know, you may think like, well, this other way is stupid, but other people think your way of doing it is stupid, I guess. And yeah, it's hard to predict <laughs> how, how big that other group of people is. Um, okay. Well, I should think about actually about then. Okay. Is when you started charging, what, what, um, what did you use? It was like PayPal or, um, yeah, at first, I tried everything but PayPal, but uh, like Amazon uh, merchant accounts and Google checkout, and they're all much harder to get set up than PayPal, which was, you know, baffling to me because, um, you know, I needed like an instant payment notification, which PayPal has. And Google checkout has this very long and winding process to even get set up. Um, and so I just kind of wanted to get it launched. So I use PayPal and occasionally I'll get an email from uh, users saying, you know, I don't support PayPal. Uh, can I just send you a check? I'm like, uh, yeah, sure. Right. Interesting. And, w- and, and what about you? Um, take, I, I have everything set up, you know, like auto renewing accounts through PayPal. So if someone's going to send me a check, I'm, I just give them a lifetime account. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, so, Amir, I mean, what about you? What, what did you what do you use for payment processing? Uh, I use PayPal. And okay. 
yeah, I have used it for a lot of years. I really don't understand the the hatred <laughs> because I I think they have a great product on on many levels, and uh, yeah, I, I think at, at their scale it's like uh, very hard to please any everybody. So they 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 they. I mean, when you have like many millions users, there will be some bad cases, and uh, yeah, you, you can't no. really like that. Yeah, right. Mm. Now, I guess there's some people don't like it because they freeze accounts on occasion. And, you know, I, I mean, I've, I've read stories yeah, about but, that once in a while, but I've never. Yeah, yeah but I mean, uh, people don't really understand that. Uh, I mean, they have like automatic fraud detection. So that's probably triggers that. Uh, and I think that's understandable. Well, I mean, uh, I at think, least I think when I look at it. With, with PayPal, making money triggers that are auto fraud detection. Um, I think it goes off, you know, just like if the wind blows too hard. People have had trouble with PayPal because I, they don't think there's a human behind it at all. In fact, you know, I, I tried to do something a little out of the ordinary, and it took a week just to finally get something happening. And if I was, like, running premium accounts by then, I'd be pissed, understandably, too. I find with PayPal, something that really bugs me is that they, they kind of... I don't know how they decide, but basically they'll say, okay, we're not going to take the money out of this person's account. This is on my, my monthly subscriptions. And so they don't take the money out of the account. Then the IPN doesn't hit Plugio. That's my, my website. And basically then people will lose their access to Plugio because it's all driven off PayPal. And it's just like, why, you know, why do they randomly choose not to bill that person? For example, uh, I had some... Go on, yeah. Yeah, uh, but... Yeah, I mean, my understanding of it, I don't really view them like as humans, but more like algorithms. So when you get uh, detected as a bad uh, user, then it's an algorithm that detects you and not really uh, uh, another human. So, uh, and I, I think that's the right approach. I mean, if, if you process like them, uh, maybe billions of transactions, see, they, then you don't really want human errors uh, or human, uh, yeah. You, you want everything to be done by algorithms and systems. Uh, and I understand. Yeah. I understand the process they go through, I and mean, they have, you know, they have difficulties just handling the huge volume. I just wish there was a competitor out there who had a easy to set up and b like, you know, maybe didn't have that volume. Maybe they were just someone small, you know, mom and pop uh, credit card <laughs> processing system, so that I could just have real human and have something easy that has instant payment notification. Maybe if maybe if Square, um, you know, Square Up and uh, the credit card processor for uh, the real world, um, maybe if they had something online, I don't care if they took 4% as opposed to the 35 that PayPal takes, I'd be more than happy to go with like a new company that does something very similar. Well, I think there's, yeah, no, there's but, a couple uh, of new ones, right? like Chargeify and Recurly and Cheddargetter. All those, all those are like that, right? Like small... It's like really, really hard to to a new competitor to enter that market because you are not really going to enter it as a small fish. Uh, I mean, yeah. So, and you need like fraud detection uh, built in into a system like that because if you, if you don't have it, then uh, your system will get ruined or you have to like have humans to process all the transactions. And you don't really want that. And if you do, then you have like privacy concerns and other stuff like that. So, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I, uh, I, Pay PayPal isn't like perfect, but 
I think they are doing a pretty good job. Yeah, no, I, I, I totally get it. The only thing is, like, uh, the entire process of building new, news blur, you know, setting up PayPal was as frustrating as a race condition in code you can't touch, you know? It was just frustrating. <laughs> I got it working, and finally I, I'm thinking, you know what? I don't even want to change a price on things just so I never have to deal with it again. <laughs> That'll be like, hey, be like, hey, Sam, why don't you change your pricing structure? You're like, dude, PayPal, man. I just can't deal with PayPal. Oh my it's god, I mean, I'm, I'm ragging, I'm ragging on my payment processor, which is a bad idea. <laughs> yeah, tomorrow, you're going to be hell to pay. Yeah. Well, so, what we, <laughs> so why don't we switch topics so they won't get in trouble? Um, I, I want to talk a little bit about design and UI um, because, uh, you know, we we had. Um, Luke, uh, Luke Robluski on a couple weeks ago. We we're talking about design and the importance of it. And uh, I guess I'll start with you, Sam. Uh, just talk a little bit about the design. I mean, who designed it? Is it just you, or have you had input from anybody or help from anybody? How's it? How's it evolved? So I use I use a little trick. Um, first off, my background is I have a, a BA in art history, so I have spent a long period of time looking at art and thinking about composition and aesthetics and elements that go into creating a larger whole. Um, okay. Now, you know, bearing that in mind, um, what I do is I mock something up, not through uh, Photoshop, because, damn, I don't even know how to launch Photoshop, but um, just, like, I write up the HTML and the CSS, and what I do is I just, like, kind of tweak it little bit by little bit, and I look at it, and then I look away, and I look back until finally something feels right, and then a week later, I change it, and I'm just constantly iterating all the pixels. Um, I zoom in, uh, you know, control um, scroll on my, on my Mac and I zoom in, I look at all the pixels and you know, when I'm working on the train, it's kind of a, a sight to behold. Like, you know, if you were to look on my laptop, you just see like 10 blown up pixels. But I just think like, <laughs> what feels right? What, where does, you know, you know, where does the ball roll down the hill and finally settle? Um, and that, as you can see, it's worked for me. It doesn't look so good in screenshots, which, you know, always feels bad when a, um, you know, a tech blog, takes a screenshot of Newsblur, and I think it just looks like crap, um, usually because they're using Windows. But, you know, when you use it, it just feels right. And it's only because I dog food Newsblur constantly. You know, I'm always using it, and so I always feel, this just doesn't feel right. And finally, it's at a place where I think the ball's finally settled on the bottom of the hill. Sure, sure. You know, you know and- hill climbing techniques. It's a uh, random restart hill climbing. <laughs> right, well, that's With some that's optimizations. You know, I was just listening to an interesting interview uh, with the guy from the guys from Optimizely, and yeah. you were talking about how in A/B testing, people fall in this bad habit of like they have like one place that they start and they just make tweaks and tweaks that they don't ever restart with something from scratch. Which kind of reminds me of how genetic algorithms work. If you've ever, you know, I mean, yeah. if you do AI, so you know all about genetic search. But yeah. you know, you 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 kind of restart to random places in the search space, and then you kind of you can kind of um, uh, you know, go to those areas that show a lot of promise and you can tweak around those areas, but it's nice to like restart to a whole different search space. You yeah. Know, just to- I, I keep the, um, the HTML and I will actually delete the CSS for large parts of something that I don't like. I'll just say start from scratch and I just delete it wholesale. Do you do any um, actual A-B testing or is it just sort of your own A-B testing with yourself? It's all, I mean, you can't really call that A-B testing. I wish I did. Because I- <laughs> well, it's, it's Sam A, Sam B. How happy is Sam with A? <laughs> Um, but I mean, you know, I, I don't have enough users to really have, you know, a confidence interval that I can be proud of. Uh, and so, you know, my, 
I have a few hundred users using the site every day, but I don't think you can make any statistically correct or statistically significant uh, inferences from such a small sample. Um, and so I'm always afraid to A-B test just because I don't have enough users. Yeah, that's a good point. And the one thing in that, that interview with Optimizely, by the way, if anyone is interested, it was on Mixergy. It was an interview with uh, yeah. Optimizely. And one of the interesting points about it that the guy made was if you don't have a big uh, sample size, you can test if you have big changes. So if you if you had a big sweeping change to your site, you could A-B test that. But if you're like testing things like the color of a button or a little, you're changing a little bit of text around, that's not going to be enough. It's completely meaningless data. Um, and I don't have enough conversions a day. You know, I'll see maybe one or two conversions in a day, but like you can't, you can't A-B test on that. Right. And, and what about you, um, Amir? I mean, first of all, why don't you tell me a little about your design? I mean, because you got, you, got, you got some recognition from Luke, and, and I asked him, I said, the question I posed was, what is the future design of the web? What are we going to see? What, what's the new direction? And he didn't really have a great answer for that. So then I said, all right, well, can you give me an example of a cutting-edge UI that, you're, that impresses you? And he said, we doest. <laughs> so uh, I was like, okay, well, let's talk to, let's talk to this guy. Well, tell us about what, what has been the design process. What, who, who came up with the UI? Was it you, or did you have a help from a designer? No, uh, I do mostly. I mean, on Todoist and Widowist, I do everything myself, at least uh, on the larger scale. So the design is done by me. And, uh, yeah, uh, I don't really know what the... What process I do? Uh, I mean, I, I think a lot about uh, the design, of course. So I brainstorm a lot, and uh, sometimes I can like uh, spend days on on solving an issue. Right. Um, you- and, and and coming up with all kinds of solutions. But uh, most of these solutions are like in my head, uh, and maybe I I. Uh, have like a, a block where I write the ideas down and then uh, it just evolves uh, from there. Uh, yeah. Do you and, have, and do you have, do you have any background in design or, or, or art at no, all? No, no, nothing. <laughs> I mean, you it's, even- uh, <laughs> it, everything is like self-learned. Uh, I mean, do you even have, okay, well, let's put it this way. I mean, do you have a good aesthetic sense? So like, are you someone who, if you put ten people in a room and expect them to draw a picture, would you be one of the better, you know, better people at drawing, or are you just completely you have no particular um, talent in art? I have no uh, talent in art. Uh, well, see, that's that's really encouraging, right? <laughs> I mean, we do it to school. You got the recognition out of Luke, and you you aren't an artist at all. That's pretty cool, actually. Yeah, but I think you know I have done this for a lot of years, so. And I, I, my philosophy is that you can get good at anything if you just spend enough time on it. And, uh, you know, I have spent a lot of time on thinking of art or, or at least design uh, user interfaces. So I have a lot of uh, experience in that. But, uh, yeah, I, I mean, when I started out, it was pretty shitty. Uh, I, I don't really have any special talent for it. And still, uh, today, I can make uh, really bad uh, decisions. Uh, right. So, uh, do, you, are you, do, do you do any type of A-B testing yourself? Uh, well, uh, on Plurk, we do. 
but uh, I, I agree with uh, Samuel that uh, you have to have a lot of data before it, it makes any sense. I mean, yeah. And on Todoist and Vidoist, I don't. I, I just uh, do what I think is right, and then uh, I change it, and then uh, I wait for feedback. Right. And, and most maybe of the time, yeah, most of the time, uh, you won't really get any feedback, or the feedback you get will be like from users that hate change. And right. I mostly just ignore that kind of feedback and uh, just look at the data because, uh, I mean, uh, if you have like ag aggregated data, uh, then you can like see how some bigger change affects the usage. Uh, and that way you can like uh, see if it's a positive or negative or if it doesn't make any difference right well um okay well we got about we got about 10 15 minutes left and i want to jump into tech stuff um so amir first thing i'd like to ask you is so what is the what technologies are you using for um for todoist and we doist uh i'm using python uh, okay yeah and python yeah, but I'm also using uh, other stuff like uh, Node.js for Comet. Uh, yeah, so uh, yeah, uh, we do it has like a real time aspect to it. Everything is updated in real time, and for that I use Node.js. Node.js, yeah. Okay, so now it seems like sorry. now. Yeah, Node.js, right? There's a there's a whole bunch of different um, I, I don't know like libraries that now support Comet. Um, we had PubNub on here for a while. They, I think they have a they have a free and a paid version, but it seems like there's also some open source stuff. Node.js is has a sort of a, a I know it provides a base for that kind of stuff, but you also have to write something on top of it to actually do the do the Comet itself, right? I mean, there, is there a particular library? Or did you write all the Comet handling the protocols and stuff yourself? Well, uh, I, you know, I think uh, people are like making a big fuss out of it. Uh, I mean, it's so simple to implement most of the stuff, uh, and Comet is one of them. I think I maybe spent two days on implementing uh, something from scratch, and uh, right. uh, yeah. Uh, so I think if you like uh, do it uh, simply and you do it smartly then most things can be implemented pretty easily, especially with hey, the right tools. So I just sent a man so, after my own heart. <laughs> you build, build it, you can build it yourself. Yeah, yeah. I mean, most of the stuff uh, that I use, I have built myself. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I, I use my own frameworks. Uh, yeah, but of you're not course... Using, I, you're not using Django or Pylons or something for your backend stuff? No, no. Uh, but I reuse like a lot of other people's code, but I don't really like to follow other people's uh, patterns or uh, other people's ideas. Uh, I, I like to experiment myself. Uh, so you're running a whole web stack on Python that you built yourself? Do you use like yeah. WebPy or anything? Uh, well, uh, I use uh, CherryPy's uh, server, uh, and then I use some other uh, libraries. But I mean, uh, the glue is like my own stuff. So I just use the components I like, and uh, yeah, I just uh, stitch them together. And I, I think actually that's really easy to do in Python. 
So I don't really understand the, why people use something like Django or pylons when you can like in an afternoon build your own framework that suits your needs and uh, is built after your own head instead of <laughs> somebody else's. Uh. Right, right. Well, uh, I use Django on a, a news blur and I have to, I also went to Django con um, earlier this year, like a couple months ago. So I, I might be a little biased here, um, <laughs> but <laughs> I, I could not say enough good things about Django. Just, you know, you write it, you know, we, we all come from some background where maybe it was PHP and we kind of wrote everything ourselves or even in Python, all these things are effectively repetitive after a while. And once you write it once, you're like, that's the last time I want to write form validation by hand. Uh, and then Django comes in and saves the day and not just form validation, but like, you know, you, you want to do simple error handling and Django makes that really easy to do. Um, and cookies and session management, account management, uh, database migrations using South or, um, you know, you want an ORM on your database. And I use Mongo as well as Postgres. And so I have wrappers for both, like all that stuff. I don't want to have to rebuild every single time. Django makes it really easy to do that as well. as you know, Well, other uh, yeah. Uh, I mean, I don't really rebuild them myself. I just build them myself. So all these tools that you mentioned, I have them in my own framework. But uh, I mean, most of them are like pretty limited to what I do. Uh, and the most of them are like very specific. So for example, I mean, the Plurks database is like sharded uh, and stuff like that. You can't really, I mean, yeah. Uh, so if you build stuff yourself, then it's much easier to make any change you want in it. I mean, if you want to like shard a Django database, it's probably going to be a lot harder than uh, if I want to uh, build in sharding for my database tool that I only use or that my sites use. Uh, yeah, and, and same goes with, with Comet. Uh, I mean, if you use like something that's very generic and uh, supports all kinds of features that you don't really need, uh, then you will have like hard time making changes in it, especially also because it's coded by somebody else. Right. What um, you wrote a couple articles about, uh, or at least one article about uh, Node.js, and you're talking about how well it scaled, and then you moved to, I think you rewrote it in C++ or something like that, and then you tried to write it again and rewrite it, um, or, or rather write a new version on the new version of jo Node.js. And get, uh, yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about the scalability of Node.js and what you found? Well, it scales really well. I mean, uh, most startups can use it out of the box. I mean, for Plurk, we have like many, many uh, hundred thousands of active sessions, open connections. So uh, the requirements are, are a lot different than most other sites. Uh, so I, I think it's a great, uh, it's it's a great thing. I mean, I I, I love to work in it, but uh, I think also there's like a lesson to be learned there because uh, if I had used uh, some other's code or some other's library, I, I wouldn't be able to like rewrite everything in, in Java or C++ uh, in a few days. Uh, and like, if you do your own stuff, then you can do that because you understand everything in it and uh, rewriting stuff is pretty easy. 
So, Sam, you know, I have, you know, obviously, um, Newsblower is heavy duty JavaScript. Um, I want you to tell us a little bit about, you know, is, is, are you using jQuery or is this some of your own stuff or what are you doing for that? So, Newsblower is half and half, uh, half Python, half JavaScript. Um, there's a lot going on in the back end and there's a lot obviously going on in the front end. Um, I use jQuery and then I use, you know, a lot of custom code to be able to handle all the interactions. Um, right. and, and really, you know, most of the heavy duty stuff I try to offload to uh, Python so that the user experience is much smoother and faster than it would be if the user had to find out, oh, are these stories read and if they're not. Um, and I think my servers can handle a lot quicker than, you know, someone's, uh, you know, Internet Explorer on their box. Um, and yeah, it's a lot of it is custom code uh, on the front end. On the back end, I use a lot of libraries, uh, a ton of libraries, pretty much. Um, you know, many, many of my problems have been solved before. In fact, even on the front end, many of my problems have been solved before, like tooltips. I'm not going to implement them myself just because, you know, I want to move as quickly as possible. There's so much code I want to write. I'm not going to write what is effectively a one, maybe two day job if you want to get it right. But, you know, some 20 some people have already written a very nice tooltip uh, through jQuery. So I just use that. Right. And what about the AI? Because that's something, unfortunately, we don't have a ton of time to go into it, but I'd be yeah. curious if you could just give us a little overview of, you know, what AI are using and, you know, how you learned, learned about so, these techniques in the first place. Um, well, I have, a, I have a, a minor in artificial intelligence, which, you know, a minor doesn't really teach you all that much, but it does teach you to be familiar with the terms that you then research later. Um, sure. So the AI I use is, it's twofold. I use implicit and explicit. Um, uh, I use these for the classifiers that I show to users when they're training their feeds. So the classifiers are really um, cla uh, tags, um, phrases, common phrases, uh, whether they're n-grams, bigrams, or trigrams, um, or they're just you know extracted phrases that are significant. Um, they might be natural, uh, you know, NLTK, so they're linguistic phrases that are adjective noun um, or adverb verb, and you know you can extract a lot of meaning out of that. And so what I do is I try to pull out as much useful information out of the feed as possible. And then instead of going to the user and saying, guess what? I think you're going to like this, um, these stories. I go to the user and say, guess what? You tell me what you like, but here it is in a very easily clickable format. What do you like and what do you don't like? Um, and then it becomes a lot easier because there's no mistakes that can be made. The only mistakes are presenting the user with too much uh, information that they then have to classify. So... Partially, it's implicit where, you know, I pull out what is the good stuff, um, but I really leave it up to the user to say, you know what, I don't want mistakes to be made. I just want these stories to be highlighted or filtered. No, what, what is it? Are you using an, like a Bayesian classifier? Or what type? I mean, Bayesian so, stuff is usually for textual, and I would assume that's probably what I would guess. Yeah, the, using. The, the problem with uh, Bayesian classifiers is that it works really well on spam. You want to identify spam, no problem. Well, what happens when you want to identify phrases in a post? You, you know, classify, you hit yes or no, you know, thumbs up, thumbs down, enough stories. Your Bayesian classifier is then trained. But then all of a sudden, something comes out of left field. Now, your Bayesian classifier could say, oh, it has, you know, sports in it. You're not a sports guy. I'm going to toss it out. But um, it may not have the phrases. It just has enough words that are around sports. Bayesian classifiers are really accurate for getting rid of stuff. But for highlighting stuff, I found that when I'm using it, it's not, well, you know, it's not accurate enough, and you have to spend a lot of time training it for it to have any use whatsoever. Um, I find it a lot easier instead of, uh, you know, looking at the shape of things to look for specific phrases um, in, in posts. 
Uh, and this now, is are you using something like are you using something this, akin to like hidden Markov models or something? Uh, no, uh, no, not at all. Okay. Well, what, what, <laughs> what, well, then what, what's the, what's the technology then for identifying the, 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 the components of the, the phrases? So linguistics, um, you'd be surprised when, you know, someone says, uh, so adjective noun is a very good, a very heavy, um, a heavy weight phrase. And that typically when you pull out, um, you know, bigrams, uh, phrases of two words or, or more being uh, trigrams, um, you can then find uh, which one have a greater weight just by figuring out what part of speech they are, as well as using uh, latent semantic analysis, LSA, um, to figure out if these phrases are repeated in multiple stories, then they must have a lot of weight. When John Gruber of Daring Fireball talks about Apple, he tends to use a few phrases, but unless you specify you like Apple, you need to actually find these phrases. Um, and so latent semantic analysis then pulls out those phrases. You know, I um, I think what you need to do is write like a three or five part series on the AI tech <laughs> behind your newsblur. And I bet you that would get a lot of play on Hacker News and might bring a lot of new people to check out newsblur. Because once people understand the cool technology behind it, they'll be sort of more interested in using uh, the uh, the actual application, I would think. Yeah. Plus, I'd like, to read, I'd like to read it. Plus, I'd like to read it myself. So. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so me as well. I, a, a lot of the basic stuff that I that I started with is from uh, Tony Sigaran's book, Programming Collective Intelligence. It's uh, an absolutely phenomenal book, and I think a lot of people have heard of it by now. Um, That's an O'Reilly book, right? It's like a green one. It is. You know, yeah, it's an O'Reilly book. I, um, I saw that. I saw that at the bookstore, and I almost bought it, but I yeah, I got to get that one. Uh, that looked such a good purchase. I had jury duty for three weeks in the summer of last year. And, you know, jury duty is a lot of time spent sitting around reading your programming collective intelligence book. Um, and, you know, I spent a lot of time thinking half the algorithms are linguistic and half the algorithms are numerical. So you can use like sort vector machines to find effectively like a Bayesian classifier, but you're, uh, you're serializing these planes of likability and you have a new story and where it falls in between these multiple planes and how close it is. And then you can classify stories just based on how close they lie uh, to previous planes of things that you like or dislike. Um, but yeah, like the book covers a bunch of things that are, are very cool and very applicable to uh, modern websites. Yeah, that is so cool. I, I think it's really uh, interesting when you... Because with AI or machine learning, whatever whatever we want to use to describe it, is it has so many cool technologies, so much cool stuff to it. But when you can actually apply it to real world stuff, and the fact that you're actually applying it to something that people use is it's pretty slick. I think. I mean, you you seem to just use it. In, you seem to see it most often in things like you know video games and stuff. But you know that's usually bigger applications that you know single or or small startups don't use. So I think it's really cool that yeah. you're actually applying. Well, so uh, Lewis Gray, who's a, a prominent Silicon Valley blogger, um, just had a post up uh, recently about how, you know, Web 3.0 is not about semantics. It's about personalization. And really, if you want personalization, you have to use these artificial intelligence, which are really just statistical classifiers. But you have to, you know, every single user gets their own classifiers and you have to figure out what the network effect is on all their, you know, little tentacles of interest. Um, and that's really the next part, you know, Web 2.0 was about social or about, you know, user contributed content, but it was about socially sharing that content. And now it's about personalization. I think Newsblur is maybe, <laughs> maybe on the forefront of that personalization, um, you know, not so much in like the Twitter, everyone can use it uh, way, but 
in that it, it helps you just cut down pieces of the web. Uh, and it does in a very personal way. I think people like right. that. You know, it's a no, new that's, idea. That's very... Hey guys, um, this is the hand of God here. And uh, <laughs> sorry to say, but I think we're going to have to wrap this up. Yeah, I'm sorry. I actually have to take, uh, I got to get out of here because I got to take uh, my son to karate. <laughs> so okay. I, I got to roll. But um, guys, listen, it was really uh, great to have you have both of you on um, because they're both working on interesting stuff. And, uh, you know, we wish you luck with both your uh, you know projects. And hopefully what we'd like to do is get you on, you know, again, sometime maybe in a few months or six months down and, and see, you know, see the progress you've made and, um, you know, just kind of, you know, get into some more depth on some of this stuff. Yeah, I'm launching an iPhone app soon. Hopefully that'll get a little bit of press. Um, so oh, that, you know, that'll also bring on a lot more users. Great. Well, we'd love to talk. I'd love to talk to you about that and, and get more of the AI and, 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 like, and, uh, Amir also, we would love to hear more about, uh, some of the tech behind Woodooist in, in, in a future, in a future show. Yeah, yeah, doing. sure, sure. Uh, yeah. Uh, we can figure something out. Thanks for the invite Great. guys. I love your Great. show. No, it's, oh, well, thank you so much. It's it's great to have you guys on, and um, this this format's worked nicely. I've been I've been listening. I haven't been participating too much, but there's been some a lot of interesting stuff. So thank you very much. Thank you guys for having us on. Um, I was thrilled when I got the email. I'm like, this is so cool. My first podcast. <laughs> nice, <laughs> great. Yeah. Well, it's doing the podcast is uh, it's always a blast for us, and and uh, it's it's always something we look forward to because you know we get to uh, among other things we get to meet really interesting people like you guys. So thanks yeah. thanks for the time. All right, guys, that's a wrap. We're out. Is it Amir Sally Heffendick? Uh, yeah, yeah, probably. Uh, yeah, I don't. I really don't know how to pronounce my last name in English. So. Okay, so I'll say Sally Heffendick. Yeah, uh, or that's... maybe uh, Sally Heffendick. Sally Heffen Ditch. Sally Heffen Ditch. Ditch. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Dich. It's Dich, not Ditch. Shut up, Jason. Yeah. <laughs> Sally Heffen Ditch. Okay, I so. don't really think it matters that much how you pronounce it. I, I, I really don't care that much because uh, I'm used to like uh, Danish people pronounce it very differently and Chinese people and English people. So. <laughs> <laughs> whatever floats your boat you know <laughs>